Recently, we watched the first woman and first woman of color, Kamala Harris, become the vice president of the United States of America. We in Canada also have our own trailblazer, Anime Paul. Anime has been a champion of social justice, civic service, and environmental causes most of her life. She's also the first Black person elected to lead a party with seats in Parliament, the Green Party of Canada. Anime's experience and new perspective challenges the status quo. She has a long history as a change agent, from when she was a 12-year-old working as a page in the Ontario legislature, to an intern for the Progressive Conservatives and Liberals, to establishing the Canadian Centre for Political Leadership, at which she was laser-focused on helping women, Indigenous people, and people of colour pursue public office. Anime is an unstoppable force of nature, looking for bold and innovative ways to address some of the most pressing issues that face our society today. Hi, Anami. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. This podcast is really about speaking with women who've had extraordinary careers and women who are also racialized, either Black, Indigenous, or otherwise identify as women of color. And you are in an extraordinary position, and I'm so excited for what you can do in the role that you have. But before we get started, perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about your journey, where your family comes from, how you've moved into this position from as a teenager. Is this something you you had planned for yourself or has this resulted from a variety of different pivots? Well, I was born in, in Toronto. My family's from the Caribbean mm-hmm. and my parents uh, came here in their mid-20s. So, you know, they were definitely adults. Uh, they had careers before they came. My mom was a teacher back in the Caribbean. My grandmother as well came at the same time. They settled in Toronto. They've always been here. They came from different islands. They actually met here in Canada. Okay. So, yes, I mean, it's their story, I think, is is similar to a lot of people from the Caribbean. You definitely came here by choice. You know, people mm-hmm. were poor, but it was a different kind of poverty, I would say. I mean, every, there were, everyone had enough to live on, you know, enough to mm-hmm. eat and, and all of that. So you weren't really driven away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you came more with a sense of adventure, uh, definitely for more opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they came. And so all myself and my siblings, we were all born here and mm-hmm. raised uninterruptedly in Ontario. And uh, in terms of me, I, I definitely always had, I, from a very early age, and I think a big part of that also comes stems from my parents, uh, because my father was invi- involved in uh, the, you know, Black movements of the time, the diaspora, basically, you know, different mm-hmm. movements uh, amongst the diaspora. And my mother also was very, very active and so I, I can't remember not ever being interested in, in policy and mm-hmm. um, social issues. I was very interested in, in public policy. And I had the chance when I was young to do things that I guess, you know, is kind of unusual. My mom, mm-hmm. I think I stuffed envelopes uh, for a local MP once when I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. and I worked as a page at the legislature when I was in junior high. They still have that program. It's a very interesting exposure to politics. So the interest was there, but I wouldn't say that it, it it crystallized in a determination to run for office. That you know mm-hmm. that wasn't really how I saw it. I was just more interested in the the role government plays in public policy. 
In terms of environmentalism, and I think it's an interesting role that you're in. We've always think of environmentalism as being very egalitarian, but there is a racial dimension to it. And I've actually written an article that'll be in Corporate Nights um, in February, looking Mm -hmm. at the diversity issue in environment and sustainability, because Mm -hmm. there's a lack of representation. And and now with all the focus on climate change, 80% of our lands are managed by Indigenous people, yet they are often not at the table. And I think for many people to see a person of color in this position, for me even, is is incredible because I've been in this environmental space my entire career and have rarely seen people of color in, in positions of influence. And so how do you, in terms of environment and race, do you have thoughts on that or, or do you feel a connection to some of that dialogue in any way? Sure, sure. Well, you know, when particularly when you speak of when a person, when I speak about the need for climate justice and social justice to go hand in hand, mm-hmm. um, I, mo- I, I most often think about that in the context of, of racialized communities. First, because when you think about environmental racism, it's something that uh, that impacts Indigenous and Black communities in particular in mm-hmm. Canada, but also low-income communities. Mm-hmm. When you think about our quest for for reconciliation and all the ways that that also uh, has intersections with uh, the environment and climate, whether that's respect for Indigenous sovereignty mm-hmm. over lands that are seeking to be exploited for their extractive uh, potential, or things that people don't necessarily immediately connect in their minds, things like the need for continued access to public transportation in rural areas, mm-hmm. which you might think about as simply a, a, a climate or an environmental issue mm-hmm. um, without realizing that it's one of the key recommendations of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls mm-hmm. reports in terms of keeping women and two-spirited people safe. So absolutely, there is a big intersection. And you're absolutely right that having more visible leadership within communities of color is incredibly important because it allows people to more easily understand, more readily understand Mm -hmm. those intersections. It gives me the opportunity as the leader to talk about the climate while at the same time allowing people to imagine that I might have other issues, Mm -hmm. um, you know, social justice issues that are important to me as well and that I have an experience about. So absolutely, it has opened up an opportunity. I'm very much hoping that it's going to attract more leadership. And you're right, there are a lot of people like you, people who are very engaged, very active. But when you go to the highest levels, really almost of of any area, but certainly Mm -hmm. uh, in the environmental community, uh, we're we're just not there. And Mm -hmm. we need to be there. We absolutely have to to be there. The lived experience uh, absolutely changes the way policy is talked about and the the way that it's designed as well. The notion I've always struggled with, my parents were immigrants to Canada from India and, and they also, like yours, weren't pushed out. They had the resources they had. They just saw North America as a land of opportunity where you could do more and there was more space. However, the irony of Canada is that while we talk about multiculturalism and diversity being our strength, we actually make it very hard for multiculturalism and diversity to thrive all throughout our society because them, and not only them, a number of my own peers who have come from other parts of the world, they have doors slammed in their face because they don't have Canadian experience. Yet they bring so much experience from wherever they've come from and an interesting perspective. And so 
What is your view on that? How can we actually make multiculturalism a real asset and and really a meaningful asset, not just something we talk about, but something that actually helps us move forward and become more resilient as a nation? It's one of the re- the questions that I had in mind when I went to graduate school because I I was trying to understand why in a country as diverse as ours, and one that had deliberately, very intentionally sought to attract talent from all over the world, why it wasn't doing a better job including those uh, voices and that talent. In my case, I was looking at it particularly in public policy, whether Mm -hmm. elected positions, but also in the senior civil service, also as the heads of agencies, boards and commissions, also in the uh, in the NGO and not-for-profit sector as well. It is a question that I think Canada in particular really needs to grapple with because mm. uh, we have done an exceptional job. I mean, we are definitely world leaders in terms of attracting uh, diverse talent from all over the world. And it is one of our biggest competitive advantages. Yep. Um, we are not giving, creating the, the access, the avenues of access so that uh, all of that talent can be unleashed, which is particularly troubling to me at this moment, because Mm -hmm. we really are at this unprecedented moment in so many different areas. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're thinking a lot about the pandemic this way, but this time, but even before that, we were really heading toward a lot of very novel challenges, Mm -hmm. which require a great deal of creativity, are going to require a lot of innovation, and you don't want to cut off access to anyone Mm-hmm. you know, that has um, the ideas that we might need as a society. You know, this is something where I think demography to a certain extent will begin to take care of this because people of color and, and immigrants to this country are just, are, we're, we're the group that is growing. Mm-hmm. And we have been here, you, me, and others. We were born here. We grew up here. We are educated. We are experienced. And we are not going to take no for an answer. And the doors will either open or we are going to knock them down. One way or the other, we're going through. So I think to a certain extent, the time of, 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 of hand-wringing and waiting is, is just um, is coming to a close. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, you know, I always say that uh, this is something we should all care about because when we when we don't do this well, we all lose out and we continue to. And we can go through the different barriers. There are definitely many systemic barriers, you know, institutional racism, systemic discrimination. These are absolutely real things. Um, mm-hmm. They have actually thrown up a great deal of barriers. But uh, yes, the time where they're going to effectively keep talent out is going to be coming to an end because, you know, the the tide of, of history is only going in one direction. It's, it's nice to hear you say that because the women I've spoken to in Canada, many in Toronto, Black, Indigenous and other women of colour have all, many of them in last year, 2020, talk about experiences in corporate and also in the federal government of systemic barriers. What are some of the key objectives you have or plans you have for the next year, two years? What are you planning to accomplish? I think we're going to be in an election this year at some point. So that is absolutely Mm -hmm. one of the things that we have to keep in mind. I want to make sure that we run the best campaign that we can, that we really provide people in Canada with a very strong progressive option, an exciting option. You know, we we have, I guess, six, if you include the People's Party of Canada, we have six 
federal parties now, major federal parties. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is that if people want the same old thing, then Mm -hmm. they already have options. You know, Mm -hmm. those already exist. There's no reason for the Green Party to exist if we're just looking to you know, hold the same field in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I want pe- I want to give people in Canada the opportunity to get excited again mm-hmm. about what we can do together, excited about our future, ambitious for our future in a way that we have been, I would say, actively discouraged from being by our political leadership, who has found a way to micro-target us and micromanage us so that we don't have to think big and we're not encouraged to think big. Mm-hmm. So that that is, I would say, the ambition. That is the feeling that I want people to associate uh, our party with, that it's the home of people who are progressive, mm-hmm. uh, who believe in innovation, who believe in our ability to do great things and to create a just and sustainable society. I think it's going to be mostly focused around two themes. One is, is completing our social safety net mm-hmm. to really seize this moment and and complete our social safety net in a way that it should have been a long time ago, given our wealth, given our, you know, our our capacity to do so. And then the other one is accelerating our transition towards a climate neutral or a net zero economy. Using this moment and the the hundreds of billions of dollars we're going to be spending on stimulus Mm -hmm. uh, over the next two or three years, Mm -hmm. using that money as an investment in our future, in Mm -hmm. the infrastructure, in the jobs, uh, in the technology uh, of the future that are that's on the one hand going to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and also set us up to have a truly competitive and ethical economy. So mm-hmm. just little things like that. <laughs> just tiny, nothing, nothing big. <laughs> nothing you big. Know, just grocery list, <laughs> grocery list stuff. You know? In terms of the type of leadership we need for this, the world as it is now, which is rapidly evolving and we have crisis after crisis often, but with crisis comes opportunity. What type of leadership do we need to be a more sustainable, resilient and innovative society? We need leadership that is unafraid unafraid of the future, unafraid to innovate, unafraid to evolve. Many of the things that we haven't seen in our, let's say, our our more prominent uh, political leadership at the moment, those are things that are absolutely needed. You cannot be afraid of innovation at a time when, as you said, it's absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. We are facing one unprecedented thing after another, uh, and one thing is feeding into the the next, you know, automation and artificial intelligence. These were things that already were going to be changing the nature of work mm-hmm. in a very substantial mm-hmm. way. And the pandemic has only accelerated that, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, tremendously. And so if you can't you can't face new challenges with old ideas. Exactly. And so you can't be afraid of new ideas. So that is a big thing uh, that we need from our leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need a leadership that is going to be as selfless as possible as as well, uh, where you're not focused on your own self-perpetuation, uh, but you're really focused on a generation that you can't even see yet and the mm-hmm. needs of that that generation. Because some of these things, these are long-term plans. And if you're only focused on the next election cycle, mm-hmm. then we can't get there. So leadership that uh, is willing to collaborate more with other parties, cooperate more across government, uh, levels of government, take less of the credit, take the time to explain a vision of the future, even if it's a long-term vision. Those are things that are, are really essential. And then we also need diversity in our leadership. 
and we've talked about that, but really we we know that whether it's government or whether it's in the private sector, that institutions and organizations that are truly diverse, not just racially and ethnically, but socioeconomically yeah. and regionally, all kinds of diversity of experiences, they produce better results, better public policy, better, you know, more dividends. I mean, however you want mm -hmm. to look at it. And so mm -hmm. for us, that is definitely has to be part of, of leadership. And I, I would say that some of the intractable issues like systemic racism, like reconciliation, these things, I do not believe that they we will make the progress that we should without that diverse representation, because the, the leadership, the makeup of the leadership we have we've had so far uh, has proven incapable of actually getting it done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Well, no. and I talking about getting it done, you know, get her done. And so that is, <laughs> that's all that's left. <laughs> that's no, all that's uh, left. I think you're right. Like we're at a stage now where you just have to get it done. And, and in terms of innovation, I was reading a study that shows that diverse leadership teams generate 45% of their revenue from innovation versus non-diverse teams, which is 26%. And right now, innovation and resilience are key to survival. And so we have every, like all the evidence that shows if you want that, you need diverse leadership and diverse in, from, and as you mentioned, all types of diversity. Can from, you send that to me? I would, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always collecting those because it is, it's just, it's great that you mentioned that it's really important for people to know that this is not, um, I mean, it is on the one hand, it is a reflection of our values and ethics and and, you know, the kind of society we want to live in, you know, our support for, uh, for diversity. But for those who feel like that's all very mushy and mm. intangible, then let's look at the hard facts. You yeah. know, let's look at what are the elements for successful organizations, institutions, you know, policy development, and you'll see diversity right at the heart of it. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's measurable. It's, yeah. it's, me it's a measurable thing. So yes, thank you for reminding people of that. No, most certainly. And there's more and more research. So if, if the business value, if you're looking at purely dollars and cents and in terms of resiliency, which ties to dollars and cents, you will want to be a diverse organization. It's really been a pleasure. I, I love engaging in discussions about these kind of questions. It's, it's inspiring for me. It's motivating. It reminds me why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, why my kids are seeing less of me and uh, and my friends and my partner as well. So uh, thank you very much for that opportunity. And yes, I, I really want to encourage any of your listeners who perhaps haven't seen a place for themselves in politics or have thought that it was for someone else or it was too difficult to know that there is a place for them and to know that their leadership is absolutely needed and welcome. And you don't have to fit the typical image or prototype of the of a politician to make an excellent um, politician and public policy contributor. So please know that there's a place for you. I mean, mm -hmm. whether it's in our party or another, and I hope that you'll consider it because this is the time for your talent. It's very much needed at this moment. We need new people with new ideas. The world is changing quicker than ever before. We don't know for certainty what will happen over the next few months or the next few years, but we will continue to adapt and share stories of strength so that we come out on the other side as a more inclusive, kinder, and understanding society. Thank you for listening. I'm Shilpa, and you've been listening to Her Climb. Did you enjoy the show? Then subscribe to Her Climb Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Her Climb Podcasts come out every week in our very first season. Thank you.